Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to Ted Gibson from his eponymous lab, TED Lab at MIT, which researches why languages are the way they are, how people learn and process language, and the relationship between language and culture. In this interview, we talk about his work with numbers, colors, word order, and information theory across various languages, and his search for simplicity in explaining the complexity of language. I hope you enjoy it. So, Mr. Ted Gibson, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. No, it's very nice. It's my pleasure entirely. I noticed on your on your website, on the website of, of your lab, it says that much of what we currently know about cognition is based on data from weird people. So that's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And I'm kind of wondering how you feel, you know, that has affected the kind of study of linguistics in, in the past 50 years or 100 years? Well, that's a very interesting question. This is, um, that, that word, weird, is coined by uh, Henrich at, uh, now he's at Harvard, he's Canadian. He's from, uh, I'm Canadian, he's like biased to knowing about Canadian. So he's from University of British Columbia. He was for many years and Harvard recent, hired him a few years ago. And so that's his, uh, his label for the bias that's in a study of, uh, basically a human anthropology of ant humans, how humans, whatever, I mean, I'm interested in the sort of high level cognition in language, but, but in, you know, he's interested in all aspects of, of human culture. And that's the bias there that's been in, in every field is it's towards uh, people like me and you who live in industrialized countries and we have uh, democratic governments and we're rich relative to many, many people in the on the on the planet and that's certain i mean i i don't know how uh controversial that is to say that language research isn't is is very biased in that way and so the way that language research has developed is it's always been uh, uh i mean certainly in the last hundred years it's been on uh indo-european languages and you know very very biased towards indo-european languages and especially of course english in the last 50 or 75 years it's been very anglo-centric and so I mean, many, you know, sort of the Chomskyan program, for example, uh, is very Anglo-centric. It was very Anglo-centric how it started. And, and, uh, and so you, you have to wonder what, by, what, what percentage of the generalizations that people are talking about are driven by a few languages as opposed to many languages around the world. And so you know, we, we mostly just don't know the answer to that because there's very, very few studies of many languages from around the world. And so that's been a research topic for me in part and many people I guess now in the last 10 or 15 years have research groups have been trying to push towards studying more I mean I think everyone universally agrees on this that we need to if we care about human language in general then we can't just study English and French and German uh, or even you know Chinese and Japanese which are very different language families but they're still uh, from very similar cultures. I mean, they're different cultures actually than, than you know, at least American and European cultures, but they're, they're still very, they're similar in many ways in terms of industrialization is very similar. And so, you know, you, we need to uh, explore a wider range of languages from a wider distribution of cultures. And so I've uh, been lucky in some ways to be able to work with some people who, um, who work 
on uh, more remote languages in South America. So I worked a little bit with Dan Everett, who worked with the Piraha for many years. He was an, um, a missionary and anthropologist working on that language for 30 years. Uh, and I, so I was able to at the very, very end of his sort of career and working with them to go and visit there. And then after that, some, some little work that we did there uh, led into studying a different group close by geographically, but of course it's an entirely different language uh, called the Chimani, which is in Bolivia as opposed to Brazil and also in the Amazonian, uh, Amazonian basin. And so those languages, um, well, they're, first of all, they're both isolates. So there's no, we don't know of any related languages to those. There's just no, they must be related somewhere far back, but within the last 200 years, there's nothing that's close. And, uh, and culturally, they're both, well, the Piraha are true hunter-gatherers and the Chimani are uh, what are called farmer-foragers, which is sort of the next step up from hunter-gatherers. They do a little bit of farming, but the farming is kind of like the farming that I could do if I were going to farm in my backyard. So it's very little farming. It's, I grow a little bit for my family. I don't, I don't farm a big field uh, with oxen or something like that. They don't have cows. And, and so they would just farm a little bit of, of something, which is more than the Piraha do. So Piraha don't do that at all. They, just, they would just do hunting and gathering, meaning they just catch what they catch in the forest and they eat a lot of fish. And um, so it's interesting to know, to try and figure out how those kinds of cultures, which are very different from industrialized cultures might affect the higher level cognition, which is you know language uh, and other aspects of cognition. I've also been uh, exploring how number number cognition works in both of those groups, and so how we you know how we count, for example. And it turns out the Piraha don't don't count. They don't have any words for any counting at all, not even a word for one, and that's pretty fascinating. Uh, the Chimani do. The Chimani have count words, uh, but they are the culture isn't so different from the Piraha. So unsurprisingly, in some sense, the, the words are acquired much, much later than in industrialized cultures. And, and there's, there's uh, so instead of learning the words as in, you know, in, in English, in sort of American English, or uh, and there's, there's big socioeconomic uh, status differences among English, but it's only a few months, that's typically a few months. And so kids will usually learn how to count uh, uh, counting is like there's multiple senses of what we mean by counting, right? So first of all, knowing the list is one thing. So you can you can ask a parent of a two-year-old, does your child know how to count? And they'll often say yes. But what that usually means is they know the words one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on. But they don't necessarily know what they mean. And so if I there's a, a nice task which was developed by Karen Wynn at uh, Yale University ages and age about 1992 it was called the give end task where you have to give the appropriate number of objects to uh, to uh, the experimenter, okay, to the parent or something. So if I say, you give me two or give me three, I have, maybe I give, you have a whole bunch of coins which are identical and I ask you to give me three. And, and a child who understands what three means will give you the right number. A kid who, there's kids who know what the whole count list are, the full count list is from one to 10, who don't know how to do any of those things. So they're, they're called zero knowers. They know the list, but they don't know what, what even one means. Then kids go through and reliably go through a stage where they know what one means. So they give one and nothing else. They might give a handful for any other number. Uh, and then, then they go through a stage where they understand what two is, one and two. And then they'll know what one, two, and three are, each one of those, but nothing else. Um, and those are called one, two, and three knowers. And sometimes you get four knowers, kids who understand what one, two, three, and four are, but nothing more. But you never find a five knower. So there's no kid 
who knows what one, two, three, four, and five are and doesn't also know what six, seven, eight, nine, and ten are. There aren't any kids like this. And so there's some interesting learning stage, which is what this is what Karen Wynn discovered, that there's one, two, three, one, two, and three knowers, sometimes four knowers, but then they they understand counting. That sort of they call it the cardinal principle is what they're called. CP knowers is somehow that's called. I, I'm I tend not to like that term, but but um, because it implies some sort of deep knowledge of counting, which they may not actually have. They have some understanding of this task, and then they understand what, how to do the task on any number up to ten. Say, uh, anyway, the the Chimani, interesting feature about the Chimani is what kids in the United States or in Russia or in Japan will learn this list at around two, like not just the list, the meanings of the list at around three. Sort of it's between three and four is typically normal. Early threes usually, and uh, in Chimani it's around eight, so it's five years later, four and a half, five years later. And so it's you, they they go through exactly the same stages. You can find one, two, three knowers, sometimes four knowers, but no five knowers, and yet you uh, and they, but they're just going through far, far later. And that just what that means is that it it suggests very strongly that the meanings of the words uh, aren't innate. You know, it's probably just about the usage in in their exposure. When how often these numbers are used with meaning, and and our cultures are so different, right? So our culture is so different from the Shamanis culture that yes, they do have numbers, but they just don't use them, don't count things very often. In our in U.S. English, uh, parents constantly talk about numbers to their kids and the meanings associated with those. And, and we actually see big socioeconomic status differences within the United States. There, it's only a few months, though. We're talking about usually, you know, three and a half moved, moves out to four with low, low SES, meaning less, less, less um, what happens with low SES is typically they just don't speak as much to their children about anything but including numbers that's there's just less data for them to learn from a, a sort of question that comes to my mind about the counting thing because it is really interesting is um how do, does it have any effect on their subitizing limit probably not i mean so that's an, so uh i mean we, we just assume not actually I, the reason we kind of assume not is that um so the subitizing uh evidence is that uh little kids babies understand the difference between you know you know between one and two between two and three uh sometimes between three and four but not between four and five and so there's something about one two and three which are really th those are called the sort of subitizing that's a subitizing range one two and three is coined by is that sue carey or liz belke i can't remember someone has made that name up for this very low these very low numbers which are the idea being that that is something that we can we're just built in that's built in knowledge for not just humans, but for all species of being able to see the differences between those, the, the, those set sizes just by looking at them. And so the language can have any effect on that because it's the same behavior in, in species, non-human species with no language. And so you'll see the same behavior on monkeys, for example. Monkeys uh, are, so the way that people test subitizing on non uh, speaking animals, including babies, is you show a baby two items on a screen or, or, or on a stage, and then you hide those items, and then then you take up the screen and you replace two with one or two with three, and and they look for a long time at this surprising event where two is turned into one or two is turned into three, but but um, they're 
they're unsurprised if you ha have four and replace them with five because you can't see the difference between four and five very easily. But you can see the difference automatically, easily, without there's no effort involved and in, you don't count or anything. You just see the difference between the sub in the subitizing range. But that's not that's true for babies who are eight months old who have no language yet, and for monkeys and for birds <laughs> and for many other species who don't have any language at all. So that can't be about language. And so no, this couldn't have anything to do with subitizing. This must be about uh, acquiring the words for the list, which is kind of different. I know that apart from numbers, you've you've also done some work on, on colors in these, um, you know, in, in these kind of remote communities. So so how, how does their cognition deal with, with colors in a different way? There's a so the long history of uh, studying words for colors in uh, in the field of language. And so it's really became most prominent through uh, Berlin and Kay. So uh, there's a guy called Brent Berlin and Paul Kay who were at UC Berkeley in the 70s, 60s, and, uh, and 60s. And uh, they observed, I guess it had been observed before them. They are not the first ones to observe that there are cultures, languages, but cultures vary in the number of words that they use for for colors. And so, you know, in English and in industrialized cultures, there's at least 11 words that everyone knows. And those are black, white, red, uh, green, yellow, blue, brown, orange, pink, purple, and gray. I don't know if I got 11 there, but that was around 11. And so at least uh, that everyone knows in English. And then in some languages, in, in industrialized cultures, there's even one more or two more or something. And so in, in Russian, it's well known there's two blues. There's a light and dark blue that everyone knows. And, and that's true, actually, in South American Spanish, in, in, at least in Bolivian Spanish, where I worked a lot in Bolivia, there's two different blues. And so that's like, a, a, and so the Berlinian K called, yeah, they call there's a light and dark blue. It's so celeste and azul. If you don't, if you speak you speak Spanish, right? So you're in Spain. I do. I did, but I didn't know that. No, no. Spanish people from Spain are totally shocked by this, and 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 include and also Mexicans. I have I had a Mexican student working with me, and this year I had a Spanish from Spain student working there, and they just think this is wrong. That no, no, no. You should say for these very light blues, they think those are those are azul, right? But but no, that's uh, celeste, which is, of course, means sky, right? It means sky or skylike or sky. But that is the word that is just the origin of all color terms comes at some point from uh, a thing which has has that color. So the word orange, you know, famously is from the fruit. <laughs> that's where the color term comes from. Many people don't know that, but the color term comes from the fruit that came first. And uh, so celeste, presumably the origin of that is from the sky, but it has a lot of light blues and light greens associated with, this is the South American, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say, so, it's Bolivian Spanish. I don't know if it's true in Peru or, uh, or in Argentina or anything, but it's definitely Bolivia. Everyone has this term. And anyway, in, um, but fascinatingly in non-industrialized cultures, there's many fewer. And so to as few as two. And so there are, uh, Communities around the world with only two, just mean just black and white, just have uh, not really dark and light either. They're really black and white. And then uh, if there's a third word, it's always red. And and then what Berlin and Kay observed in the 70s, 60s, was that in the sample of languages that they looked at, which was 20 languages uh, that they were able to get access to in the San Francisco Bay Area, they were at Berkeley, um, where they could get informants who spoke these different languages that 
if someone, if, if, a, if a language had three terms, always black, white, and red, if there was a fourth, it was always the equivalent of the English green or yellow. If it was a fifth, it was the other of green or yellow. If it was a sixth, always blue, uh, and so on meaning there was a total order in the way that terms seemed to come into uh, a language relative to any industrialized language they knew. So like English as baseline. So that seemed fascinating. And they hypothesized that there was a, there is a, uh, a salience universal of how the basically the visual system works, how vision works, how the either the vision in the eye or vision connecting to the brain works so that Black, white, and red are the most salient, easy, easy to see colors for, for humans, and then and then yellow and uh, green equally, and then blue and so on. There's some way of dividing up the color space such that those things are the most salient, easiest, uh, easiest to see, and and then later terms come in because they're less obvious for the visual system. And so they were working with that hypothesis because of this total order, and they gathered money, much much more data. So they went to 110 languages around the world, all remote, relatively remote languages, none of them industrialized cultures. And they had an anthropologist or a missionary uh, at each one of those communities work with them indirectly and uh, gather data from 25 to 30 speakers in each one of these communities. Really quite an incredible project. The data are available on the Berkeley website to this day, the lovely data, where you just get, a, a, you, you're given a different color chip of 330 of these different color chips and you're asked, each participant is asked what, what you would label that in your language. And those raw data are available and what they were hoping to find was this total order of how the color space, so they, the, the colors that they asked about were colors evenly spaced perceptually over the color space. You can basically think of color. There's many different ways of thinking of color. We actually don't know. It's not, people don't understand this, but we don't actually know how color vision works still really. And we don't know how color perception quite works. So this is one color space. It's called the Munsell color space. This guy Munsell was a visual psychophysicist from the turn of the last century around 1900. And he figured out a one method of dividing up the color space such that in his space, up and down, there's a three-dimensional space, up and down is the, 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 um, uh, the pole, the north-south pole, right down the center of this sort of sphere. It's not really a sphere, it's an off-center object. Uh, anyway, that thing, you got white on the, on the north pole and black on the south pole in this space. And then around the surface, on the surface of this, uh, um, unbalanced sort of sort of sphere, it's not really a sphere, is are the brightest colors. And around the, the equator is what you have, the, the color wheel is basically on the equator. But as you go up, you get bright, you know, lighter, lighter colors of whatever's on the color wheel. And as you go down, you get darker versions. And as you go to the center of the sphere, you get gray, you get the grays, the, the dull colors. Okay. And, and so you have the achromatic ones right down the center of the pole of this, of this, uh, of this sphere. And so this guy devised this sphere, this sort of sphere, because it's like not a center, not a center thing, based on the perception, uh, uh, him doing visual perception experiments. And the World Color, Color, Color Survey used his, his space. There are other spaces, there are other color spaces out there. This is not the only one. There's a French group called CIE, which is not quite the same as this. And, and it's working on, instead of the, the, the method for gathering the data isn't quite the same, they're similar, but they're not the same. We actually don't know exactly how color is perceived 
in, in humans quite. Um, and we know how the vision works, we know how the, the, but we don't know the perception, how that exactly works. Anyway, so this guy had these three, he, these people in the World Color Survey got Munsell space, 330 of these chips on the outside of this sphere, equally spaced. So where spacing between the two chips is determined by how similar these things look. We, if you have normal vision, you have normal trichromatic vision. You've got three cones that you can, so such that you can see uh, colors. And normal people have that. About seven percent of men don't. They are uh, uh, green, red, colorblind. But lots, most people can see all those. And if you do, then you can see literally millions of distinct colors. And so, what Munsell did was figure out ways to rate the similarity of these colors and devised a set of um, pigments, which are basically paints, which are uh, uh, um, spaced across the visual perceptual space. That's what he figured out. And then the World Color Survey people said, we'll take evenly spaced version of some set of those, and it was around 320, actually, 320. And then there was 10 right up and down the pole they took as well, so 330 total. And then just ask people to label those things. And so that's, that's what he did. That's what Berlin and Kay did. And they didn't find what they thought they would find, which was there's a total order. In fact, they didn't actually find that. What they, they sort of talk about that still since, but it's very, very messy. The data from their original experiment are much from, from these 300 and from the, from the original 20 languages, you know, blowing up to these extra 110, which are, are all non-industrialized cultures. It's, it's, you still see that if a language has two, everyone's got black and white. There's always a word for for black. There's always a word for white. And there's all. And if there's a word for um, uh, if there's a third word, it's always corresponding to English red. But but after that, it's very messy. The there's nothing. There's lots of spaces which don't have uh don't have any. You know, yellow doesn't come in early. Yellow. So Chamani is a great example. Yellow doesn't hasn't really come in there. It has at least three, but it has you know probably five or six words that most people know, and yellow is just not one of them. It's not a word in there. It should be early in this in this space. It isn't, and and so there's a lots and, and what the spaces look like or don't really sometimes don't correspond very well to English colors, and so there's a concern there about well, I mean I, I wonder if what what they were looking at originally is comes back to your question at the very beginning is that maybe there's some Anglo-centric Anglocentricity associated with asking this question to bilinguals. Everyone was a bilingual in that original data set. It was 20 languages, but they all spoke English as well. And so there may be some spillover from knowledge of English or knowledge of some other language into the native language. Whereas you go to these, their, their, their great data set, the World Color Survey, it is mostly monolingual speakers of each of these 110 languages. And uh, you don't see such the, the, the exact sort of English. Um, correspondence so much so so when you say that language doesn't have a word for the color does that mean that when they want to talk about that color they make some sort of comparison is that how they do it or they just don't talk about the color at all it's a fascinating question and i would say mostly they just don't talk about the color at all it's uh so uh they just mostly don't they can't answer that question in so in the chamani chamani is a is a has a culture which is kind of low on this uh, scale of how many words people typically know. It has at least three, definitely has black, white, and red, and it has 
probably two more on average that most people know. And, and, and any one person will give me six or seven words, but they vary a lot in the, this, you know, the fifth, sixth, and seventh won't be the same across people. There'll be different things they'll say for, the, for similar spaces. And so what, they can answer the question. And so, um, and there's a, there's a lot of interesting questions there actually. So they have a term for color. So there's some of these cultures don't even have a term for color. And so then you're doing, you're sort of teaching them this concept of color. They probably know what the concept of color is, even though they're, at least you're teaching them to label that concept. Of course, they can understand what the concept is without ever having labeled it before, but because there's nothing different about, it's, it's totally obvious, I think. I mean, I haven't actually run this task myself on a culture which doesn't have a word for the concept color, but uh, I would find it hard to believe that they wouldn't understand what the, what the task is about. Uh, because when they're doing the task, you have to label 330 of these chips, these color chips in a row, uh, when there's nothing similar about any of these things except the color. And, and I, I presume they're human beings, they can figure out after two of these or one even, what we're talking about here, what the relevant feature, even if I don't have a label for that feature, that abstract concept in my language, I can understand what it is. So it's like for me with number, with the Chimani, or well, I guess with the, uh, with the, with the Piraha, really, we don't have any words for numbers. They still, they know we're talking about quantities in sets. They just don't have any words for those things. It's not like they can understand what the task is about. They understand perfectly well what the task is about. They just don't label these things. No, I'm just, I'm really surprised when, when, when it seems like based on the original data, it seems that, there's always black and white to begin with, which I'm kind of surprised about because, you know, in nature, there's not a lot of things which are kind of pure black and pure white. Um, so you would think that maybe on a more natural color, like a color that occurs in nature, like, I don't know, green or, or brown would, would be first. Um, well, that's a very interesting, I mean, it's a very interesting question is about why black and white. I have some speculation about that, but, but you're interesting but just to get back to it, we, we've only talked about one of the hypotheses so far, which is the original Berlin and K, which is kind of salience, which is kind of not far off from what you're getting at. And in some, well, it's, it's actually different from what you're saying. I think what you're saying is very cl much closer to our hypothesis, which is about use, it's sort of a usefulness. So when we start thinking about why do we have words at all? Why, why do any human languages have words? Like, what is the point of a word? And um, so... Is it, you know, is it, that's a, it's an interesting deep question, actually. And so a, a plausible answer to that question, a very simple, maybe sim, maybe simplistic answer to that question is that we have a word when we want to, I mean, depending on what we're talking about, we're talking about, it, I, I need to tell someone else, I want to, if it's about, language is about communication to some, some degree, then I need to tell someone else about something that I'm thinking about. And so we're talking about, if we're talking about color, why do we have color words? Those are properties of objects as opposed to objects themselves. And so why do I have, under this hypothesis, that's because I, I might have multiple objects of exactly the same color, such that I need to tell you which one I'm referring to, you know, the, the, the red one and not the black one, or the black one and not the white one. And this, and this kind of, I need, that's when I need a word. So the, under, under the communication-based hypothesis idea. So it's not that we can't, so it's very different from the perceptual base. The perceptual thing is about, I see something and I think it's, there's something perceptually interesting and salient about it, and I create a word for it, not because I want to tell you about two things which differentiate on that color, just because I, I find the color interesting or something. That's the perceptual hypothesis. And so 
you're talking about, you know, this this very so under the the use space hypothesis, which was our hypothesis, it's not actually obvious that green and brown, even though they're the most common things, would be the first things to the first words to to come out because under the use space hypothesis, I would need two objects which are identical except for color, such that I need to tell you about oh, it's the green one, not the brown one. Well, there's not very many things that are identical except for green and brown in in the world. I mean, you might think oh. A banana is a great example of that, actually, where a banana can go from green to yellow to brown. And that's actually very common in most of these uh, hunter-gatherer kinds of communities that I'm exposed to in, in, in um, South America. But the, the issue there, the problem there is that color isn't the only thing that's changing when you change the color of a banana. You're changing its usefulness, actually. You're changing it from an unripe thing to a ripe thing, to a rotten thing, you know? And so you might easily imagine the use there is not, I mean, the color is correlated with the use, but we could easily talk about the actual use itself, like what, you know, what, what the taste is and, and whether I want to eat it or not, you know, that is correlated. It, it kind of just, it kind of just blew my mind a little bit, actually, to think, to think about the fact that, you know, uh, you know, in language, we, we, we sort of create words for things for things, right, that we need to talk about, and and objects are kind of things, but but as you said, colors, they're they're more like a, like an extra. They're they're not actually really necessary, are they, to to talk about a thing? That's that's really that blew my mind. Well, it's fascinating you say that, but because it, it they are necessary in our world, in in your world and my world, which is the industrialized world, they are absolutely necessary because almost everything that we interact with is uh, of an arbitrary color because we like color. Humans like to look at color and then we, if we dye things, all these different colors. And so then I can have a shirt which is red or purple or gray or, or very different subtle shades. So you go to a paint store, you go to, uh, you know, what we would have here is like Home Depot or Lowe's, these giant, uh, you know, uh, do-it-yourself kinds of stores which have, uh, you know, thousands of different colors and they all have different labels because that's important. I need to be able to convey to you <laughs> in a word, not by showing you a picture, because I have to somehow get that across the, you know, I have to tell you somehow what that is. And so now there's, you know, a, a thousand, I don't know, 200 different yellows and oranges and browns and greens. And I have to, and, and so, this, so depending on what your job is, if you are a painter or if you are a home designer, then you may know hundreds of words for colors as opposed to the i mean i know more than 11 because there's you know i know a few more that than just the 11 that i that i every that a child knows but i uh and, we, and you, you need those depending on what the job is that you're doing it as a if you're in fashion you need that right that's like what is fashion it's it's a texture and it's color you know and it's uh you know of course there's uh, shape as well these things are very important to to humans these are like what looks good to us uh you know, has a, a huge component of that is color. And so then the more you're in the fashion industry, the more you care about color and you need more words. Well, if you're in a hunter-gatherer community or, or a farmer-forager community, these things just do not come up. Like this is just not, you can't change your environment in this way. They, you don't have arbitrary colors to any objects. Everything is kind of given to you by the natural environment. And so uh, it's, in the, it's not that's, that's it may be slightly overstated because they do have 
for example, uh, industrialized clothing. But the industrialized clothing is not obtained in the same way as we obtain industrialized clothing. They don't go to a store where they can choose whatever color they want. The clothing they get is really happenstance in some weird way such that it gets given to them by some, you know, someone got it somewhere and, and it gets passed on in some way. They don't have a lot of choice about color uh, or, or shape or stuff like that. And so it's very different. So you don't need the words. So, you know, they see the same things we see, but there's like, if you look at a, a sunset in, in uh, South America, it's the same beautiful uh, array of colors as it is here. It's just, there's no reason to label those colors actually here or there. <laughs> there's no reason we can, but you don't have to because I don't have two skies and I don't have to tell you which sky to look at. Is it this color one or this one? No, there's only one of them and we can just admire it and there's not really any need for the words. It is fascinating. You know, when people sort of start thinking about this for the first time, they realize that why is there, why do we have these words? It's, you know, when I, when I bring up this thing is you really see millions, you see literally millions of colors. Why is it we only know 11 or 12, you know, or, 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 or even if it's 20, even if you know 20, it's because that's, that's all I need to get around in the world. It, and, and when you start looking at the variation in color that's actually there, uh, you realize it's actually uh, it's a hard problem, this categorization that we're doing. And, and I suppose this also, the, the use kind of hypothesis would also explain numbers, right? Because if you're a hunter-gatherer, um, you don't need numbers. I mean, I, I believe that the origin of numbers was like the Sumerian clay tablets or the, the tokens that were used like in the early days of trade. Like if, if you're, unless you're doing trade, you probably don't need numbers. There's a, there's a bunch of theories actually about when, when numbers were first kind of discovered, whatever they were, why humans first started realizing there's an abstraction over sets, which is numbers. And, and that's, trade is certainly one and, and farming is another actually. So just when, when you have um, a bunch of animals say goats and uh you go to bed at night and you you want to get up in the morning and make sure they're all there this is a nice simple shorthand to keep track of whether or not they're still all there say you have 17 it's like that's a good way to remember to see if they're all there it's I, often i talk i talk about the peter with people sometimes and um the peter have no words for numbers not even a word for one not at all. and and people are surprised by that and i often get the question you know well I, cause I showed them pictures of this, of this group and there's a lot of kids, there's adults and kids, and there's a lot of interesting properties of this group, but they do have a lot of children. And so people sometimes ask me, well, how do they keep track of their kids? If you have like three or four kids, isn't number a good way to keep track of your children? And I, I always say that, well, you don't have children, do you? Anyone who asks me this question, <laughs> because <laughs> if you have children, you know, that's not how you keep track of your kids. You don't, go to bed. I have four kids get up in the morning. Oh, one, two, three, four. They're all here. No, it kind of, it's kind of important who they are, not just whether the, the same set is like with a group of goats. I go to bed. If someone happened to have replaced one with another, one of my goats, unless I, I, I keep track of their identities, their identities of my children are very important. And so I need to keep track of more than just the, this abstraction over the set. Whereas that might not be as important if it's a farm animal in some way, although I can't really imagine why anyone would replace one of your goats with another, but, but it is a nice, you, you know, you, you realize that's not how we, we do this. If you have children, I don't. <laughs> no, no, I only have one son, but um, 
I, I definitely don't need to count him to know he's there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're maybe you're sabotaging. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually because we've been talking kind of a lot about how um, how kind of cognition and, and and culture and maybe language can be different in different places. But I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about linguistic universals, about how you feel about the idea that, you know, we have certain things that are common to us as humans, you know, that maybe you could say they're innate, things like, you know, wanting and needing and, and, and liking and not liking, and, and how maybe the, they could, you know, they could, they could be linguistic universals. Well, um, the... The universals you described, even if they might relate to linguistic universals, they probably come from cognitive universals, like some other kind of uh, human need, which might drive the language in some way or other. And so that's a big open question, right, in language research, which, you know, so Chomsky is in, and others uh, have been famous for saying that there are features of language which are built in universals of human language, which have no basis in any other area of cognition. So they're just about language. And, and so those are, that's a kind of a different, that's, that's, a, that's one kind of a question. And another kind of question would be whether, univer if, if there are any kinds of universals in human language, say in what words look like or what sentence frames look like or whatever those things might be, do they derive from uh, other cognitive properties, and I've been. Our work group is working on that second part of the uh, of, of the of the equation: is whether or not there are universals, and maybe they are. If there are, and, and we think there are, that are are driven from other areas of cognition. And so the color one is one. There's there's this lovely universal that we were able to discover, which I didn't uh, sort of quite get to, which is in color naming. Turns out, if you in in terms of communication, this use based idea makes this, uh, actually we, we, we came upon this, we didn't know this would be there, but it turns out that if you do a very simple information theoretic analysis of, it sounds so complicated, but it really isn't very complicated for how complicated it is, easy or hard it is for me to convey a color to you, okay? So I've got in my head a physical color, like a, a color of an object, and I wanna convey that to you. How do I do that? I use a word, okay? And I use a word, and we can talk about the number of bits, the number of yes, no questions it takes to convey that information. And um, we can, in abstract terms, we can think of that, the ease or difficulty of that conveyance in terms of two things. One, how reliably I'm gonna label a particular color with a word. Say it's a really great red, okay? So the probability of me and almost anyone you labeling that thing is going to be red. We're going to use the word R-E-D in English, red for that. But there, there's a color that I've got in mind. And so there's some probability distribution of words over that color, which is going to lead to the ease or difficulty of conveying that color. And then the other part of it is given you, say you hear the word, you're the comprehender now, how many other colors, if from the colors that, that we might be considering, would be consistent with that word? And so that's like the surprisal on the listener's side, co confusion, uh, given like how many other, are you, maybe you meant this one over here or this one or this one, it's all these different shades of whatever that word is, which thing did I mean? And so that kind of depends on how many things in the color space we're considering are consistent with that word. And it turns out that if you take Munsell's color space, this is the color space the World Color Survey used, that there are 
uh, all, all languages in the world, it turns out fascinatingly, convey warm colors more easily than cool colors. What that means is reds, oranges, yellows, browns, anything in that kind of space uh, is easier to convey than greens and blues. Basically, greens and blues are harder to convey. They take more guesses, yes, no question guesses to convey in every single language of the world. Uh, all, and so that's actually a true universal as far as we know. Like it's been, we've, we've looked at it in 113 languages, but it's absolutely, you know, very robustly true. And so that's fascinating. Why would that be? That's because we think, we don't know, but the very nice hypothesis here is it's got to do with objects. Objects versus backgrounds. Objects tend to be warm colored. Uh, backgrounds tend to be cool colored. It's easiest to see in terms of backgrounds. Backgrounds are usually sky in just random outside scenes, the sky or the ocean, the water, the, the all and the trees and the grass, that's all green and blue stuff. This is stuff we don't want to label. This is stuff that's in the background. The objects are the humans, the animals, the, the, the fruits, the berries, those things we want to label. And those things tend much more overwhelmingly to be warm colored than cool colored. And so then the idea is that languages just bring in more words in the warm part of the space, even though perceptually the blues and greens take up a huge percentage of the space. We just don't want to talk about that space because objects typically aren't that space, aren't in there. Isn't that cool? Wow, that that is actually incredible. <laughs> again, and again, I suppose it, it, but it goes back to the same hypothesis, right? It's about it's about usage, leading the language. Absolutely, it's all about usage. Yeah, and so we that's one of the universals that we've actually uncovered, and um, there are others. And so uh, so these communication based universals are, are uh, there, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them. And so, well, another one is that all languages, I mean, this is about words again, that um, word length, there's this guy called Zip, he's a linguist from Harvard in the 30s. And uh, he had one of, one of his laws was called, well, they had two laws, but one of them is, you know, they're both Zip's laws. And so I can't remember if it's the first matter, there's a relationship between word length and word frequency. And he just observed that longer words tended to be lower frequency. And, and so that's a, a kind of a cognitive universal. And, and the work that I did with um, an ex-student of mine, Steve Piantidosi, he, he was the one who did sort of generalize that idea. Well, he, he noticed that there's lots of very short words in a language, in English, for example, which, which are very low frequency. And that's kind of surprising under this Zipfian idea that you could have a very short yet um, uh, yet low frequency word. And I'm trying to think of an example. Well, yonder is one that just came to my mind right now. And so yonder is extremely low frequency, but um, uh, and it's very short, it's only two syllables. And yet, it, uh, um, and his idea was that, well, yes, you can have lots of these short words as long as they're predictable in their local context. So it's not really the, the, the frequency independent of context, it's actually the frequency in the context, the predictability in the context, which help predicts a word's length. And so the point is about yonder is, um, there's a bunch of these examples that he found uh, where it's, it's, it usually occurs after over in English. And so you don't have it on its own. It's, it's, uh, it's very, in very narrow predictable context, do you use this word? Yes, it can be short because it occurs in a very predictable context. And, and across every language we've looked at, you get a nice relationship um, between word length and the predictability in the con in, uh, across, uh, average overall possible contexts. 
But does that kind of replace the original law then? Yeah, it does. It totally does. And, you know, and, and but Ziff would have been totally happy with that. This is just maybe Ziff was just like working before this information theory was around. So Claude Shannon was around in the 40s and and Ziff was around the 30s. This is the very end of uh, Ziff's career. So there's two two things going on here. One, the information theory didn't exist. This sort of very simple. I mean, it's simple, but it's really great. The information theory due to Claude Shannon. And two, the data sets didn't really exist. So you need bigger data sets to estimate predictability and context. We were only able to estimate these things really well uh, once we got Google Ngrams, which was in 2009. And so, you know, Ziff working in the 40s, yes, he can estimate frequencies of words, but to get predictabilities of words across all possible contexts means you need large, large data sets of corpora of how words tend to uh, tend to look. And, and you just didn't have that back then. I'm, I'm wondering how, what, it, what kind of effect this might have on, on somebody who's trying to learn a language, because, you know, if you sort of look at the original Zips law, you can say, well, the good news is that, you know, all of the really common words are kind of short. So, that should be kind of easy to remember. But, you know, with the new kind of revision, it's more like, well, actually, um, you can also have lots of really short words that are not that common. So suddenly for a learner, context becomes super important, like learning words together. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, I think that's, that is right. And that is the a good way to learn those words because that's actually... You know, how would you learn a word like yonder? I mean, you don't want to learn it independently. It's really only used in very narrow contexts. Many words are only used in very narrow contexts. That's like the, they're very, they really are very, con in, in normal language use, it's, you know, there, there are words which are used widely across many contexts, but I think many, many words are very, really context specific. And so I think the best way to, I mean, it's, you know, you're probably gonna, you know, you need to, you're gonna need the context to to learn those things, you know, correctly in some sense. To be like a native speaker, correctly in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I'm not sure if that's easier or harder. Probably in some sense, it sounds harder in some ways, but it might be easier in some other way, which I'm not seeing right off the top. Well, I mean, I think it doesn't really matter whether it's harder or not because it works. You know, like, like there's no way to get around it. Like. Like I know that there's lots of lots of students who will you know who sit down with flashcards and they'll knock out you know 200 words in a session, but their retention is really low you know um, because it's just that's just uh, like rote memorization and when it comes time for them to put it in a sentence, you know there's no connections there so yeah um, even if they do the fancy stuff like um. Uh, what's it called? Um, uh, oh my god, I can't remember the name. It's where you where you um, the where the flashcards um, repeat at certain frequencies, um, depending. Like you know, you'll get you'll get a word you haven't seen for two weeks will appear again. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, spaced repetition. Yeah. yeah, it's like a big thing in the world of. It's a big thing in the world of language learning. Some people love to punish themselves. And sit in front of flashcard programs for hours. I, I personally can't understand it, but yeah, no, I I I, I can imagine that. I can imagine it's not really how languages learn, right? Because the way I mean, I mean, it, I shouldn't say that. It's not the naturalistic way to learn language, which is more about communication with other people, right? That's a kind of a a, a weird non-communicative way to learn language. But I shouldn't say weird because maybe 
there's like social aspects of language such that uh, people are variable and they maybe don't want the social aspect as much as they want to know the language, right? And so maybe that's something where if you're less social, you might be okay with doing that. Whereas if you're really social, you probably have an easier time learning. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I talked with Adele Goldberg about this a little bit and I sort of asked her this exact question about, you know, but if it kind of works for them, is that okay? And she said, well, it might work, but they're going to have different types of skills. So, you know, a person who learns in a social way is going to be great in a conversation and someone who sits alone in their basement with flashcards is going to be... That's right, that's right. That's exactly right, yeah. I, I would agree with that, yeah. Sometimes, you know, people... This is what this is why I'm so grateful to to anybody who who like you know like yourself, experts in the field, people who'll talk to me because you know I just get these little insights that just make me a better teacher. You know, help me to really understand why. You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this um, this paper here. So a noisy channel uh, account of cross linguistic word order variation. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I think well, I'm going to read. It says that. Um, we hypothesize that subject-object-verb or su subject-verb-object variation can be explained by language users' sensitivity to the possibility of noise corrupting the linguistic signal. So that that's pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, I think so. We think that's a pretty interesting hypothesis. It's like, so the, yeah, the idea is that this is again, Shannon and information theory applied now to instead of the, word level sort of the to the sentence level of what what what's going on in communication and so um in some other work that we had done we ended up providing some evidence that suggested that people were very sensitive to uh the, the possibility of deletions in uh in in reading and in listening to language meaning that if i give you a sentence like, uh, I'm gonna say something crazy. I'm gonna say, you know, the ball kicked the girl. Okay, that really only means one thing, even though it means a really strange thing, right? It means a strange thing. That means the girl is a patient. She's being kicked by a ball, which is very odd. And so you might've thought I probably meant the ball, the girl kicked the ball, even though it's clear what I said, the, the, the ball kicked the girl. Um, now, Consider another sentence, which is equally weird in some way, which is if I say, uh, um, you know, John gave a book to the girl. Okay, uh, there, or I say, you know, the boy gave the gave a book to the girl. There, it doesn't sound so weird at all, even though there's a sense in which that is completely strange, because what I literally said was. You know, John gave a book the girl, and there's a double object construction in English, and therefore, the girl is the object, and the and a and the uh, uh, a book is the goal, and so therefore, what I really what I meant there was, I guess, literally, was I gave the John gave the girl to some book, which is very odd. And that's a very strange thing to say. That's kind of plausibility wise as weird as balls kicking people. You don't give people to inanimate objects. That doesn't make any sense either. But for some reason, when people hear or read that second sentence, they are very happily, they happily process it as if I meant the, you know, John gave a book to the girl. I never said to, 
um, but I, and I didn't get the order of those things wrong. I didn't switch them. I, 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 so, so for some reason, people are very happy to think I deleted, I just missed out a case marker. I missed out this, this, prone, this uh, preposition. And, and we showed this in a bunch of studies in, in, across a, a few constructions that in English that people are very happy to process, strictly speaking, ungrammatical sentences in a very grammatical, or actually not, not actually grammatical, but very implausible according to another interpretation, which just makes much more sense in the world, but only if there's like a single deletion away. And so like, it seems like deletions are something that we expect are, are okay. Well, first of all, we should be, we should be painfully aware, even though people are mostly not, that language is a noisy communication system, okay? So how do we know that language is noisy? Well, one thing, spoken communication is very noisy. I make all kinds of speech errors. Uh, you, you know, most people make all kinds. I just did a false start right there. I started to say something. I said the same word twice. This happens all the time and I'll do it depending on what my state of mind is. I'll do more. The more nervous I am, the more errors I will make. Uh, people do this all the time. It's like, and you know, just how bad is this? Well, there's a, there's a term which is proofreading. What is proofreading? The term in English means we know we wrote it wrong and we want to find the errors in it, even though we tried to make it right. I need to proofread this because I'm sure there's all kinds of, of my own errors in my own, you know, my own text, which I wrote down carefully. So where language is just filled with errors, it's just the natural state of the world. Um, and so we know this though, as users of language. And so when, so one of the, we, we, what we were trying to explore in one of these papers, but the one, one that sort of preceded this was to see what kinds of errors are people okay with in the, in the noisy channel. We know it's a noisy channel. That's Shannon, again, this information theory. Um, how is it noisy? Is it, do we expect uh, exchanges? Do we expect deletions? Do we expect insertions of random things? And no, it turns out that deletions are something that we are expecting a lot. As long as the it's a low content thing, we might expect to lose that thing a lot of the time. And so given that, which is something we'd found, then we, so we sought to think, think think about word order across the world's languages. It turns out that there are, in very simple, you know, people have studied the sort of simple, simplistic version of word order across the world's languages in terms of the, the agent, the patient, and the verb, okay? So sometimes people talk about the agent as the subject. Those aren't actually technically the same thing, but those things get um, thought of as very similar things. So in a sentence like, the girl kicked the ball, the girl is the subject and the agent, and the ball is the object and the patient and the verb is the is kicked in the middle there. And in English, we have a very biased word order to being subject or agent first, verb in the middle, and the objects are at the end. And that's a very common word order. Chinese has it, uh, many African languages, lots of languages. It's about something like 40% of the languages of the world, depending on how you count, there are 7,000 languages around the world, but some very large percentage, 30 or 40% have an SVO subject, verb, object, word order. And then another extremely common, even more common than SVO is SOV, verb final. And those are languages like uh, uh, Korean and Japanese, um, Turkish. There's, uh, again, hundreds and hundreds of those, thousands of those around the world. It's a, it's a little bit more common than SVO. So SVO and SOV are the most common word orders by far. There are in studies of word order, there's like some ambiguity. We, we just don't know about some quite a lot of languages. We know about something of a uh, something of the word order from around 1,200 languages around the of the 7,000. And of those, most of those are SOV or SVO. And um, 
so there's, uh, and then there's, there, I, I can't say much, there's one other pretty common word order, which is called, it's verb, subject, object, VSO. It's not very common, it's around 10%. And then the rest are kind of mixed to the extent there's anything. Uh, and uh, there also must be, but there also must be some languages where you can't even sort of like agglutinative languages maybe where it's sort of just like one huge word and there's not really the difference between, I don't know. That's a very interesting general point is how do you, how do you, uh, well, even if it's an agglutinative language, to the extent the languages are agglutinative, if there are separate words for things like nouns and verbs, like that, to the extent there are, there are separate words for nouns and verbs, which is not obviously apparent in all of the world's languages, although in most it is true. Uh, then where is the, the, the methodology of people who've studied this is like, well, if, where do you put the agenty thing, the noun agenty thing relative to the verby thing? So ignoring the morphology, where do you put these things if they're going to be fully labeled? There's another whole question, you know, maybe you're getting at is that, you know, many, many languages, if they have a lot of morphology, don't even, it, there's a lot of things that are pronominalized. And so you don't even mention you don't even need to say the the nouns, but say in the first mention, what's the default way? This the this methodology is trying to study why, you know, uh, well, he's trying to get some inkling out of what the possible word orders are across the world's languages. And so, anyway, the the two most common, I think, uncontroversially, are SOV and SVO, very much so, and and VSO unquestionably, I think, is third. And then the others are just very very rare, actually. The other possibilities like OVS or VOS or whatever I'm missing here is the other, uh, there's one other I'm missing there, um, which would be OSD, I guess. So those are ones where subjects come after objects. And those are just very, very rare across the world's language. So agents typically come before patients as opposed to after patients, almost always. And that's possibly, plausibly because, I mean, this is an old story due to a guy called Brian McWinney, who thought that, and it seems very plausible to me, is that you know we as humans, uh, like to talk about other humans and agents are usually human. They're, they're usually ourselves, in fact, and we like to talk about ourselves and we want to talk about um, other humans and those things are easiest to talk about first. So we kind of go with the most salient, obvious things first. Those are the humans. And then we go on from there. And then they, so any the, the subjects kind of, kind of have to come before the objects if there's some sort of cognitive universal based on animate, animate, because of the patient things are usually, are very often inanimate, things like a ball in a, in a girl kicked a ball. And so, uh, so those things tend to come after, they're less important salient to humans. And so we were wondering, so this noisy channel thing, we had this idea that maybe uh, it might explain something about the world's, world's languages, uh, that languages tend to be either SVO or SOV, um, but when they're SOV, they're almost always case marked. And when they're SVO, they're almost, they're, they're rarely case marked. And so what is case marking? Case marking is this end, uh, endings, morphological, usually a suffix, on, on a noun which tells you whether it's an agent or a patient, whether it's a subject or an object. So a language like Latin, which has case marking, for example, will say the word boy differently if it's an agent if it's a, if it's a if it's a subject or if it's an object there'll be accusative on the sub on the, that's what it means to be an object or a nominative case for for uh, the subject and many many languages well mostly sov languages have case marking whereas svo languages like english and and french and, and mandarin chinese don't have any case marking and we were trying to guess about why that might be this is an old observation actually due to 
uh, Joseph Greenberg, there's a, is a neat observation that SOV languages tend to be case marked, SVO tend not to be. We thought maybe this has got to do with noisy channel communication, that if you have a um, SOV word order and you want to keep that SOV word order, there's like there's a you got to keep in mind here. There's a possibility of noise in the channel, meaning a lot of the what it means about noise is maybe uh, meaning I'll, and I'll lose something. Remember, I told you the deletions are kind of most relevant here, and so I might lose a word here and there. And so maybe I want to talk about two animates, animates one animate, animate acting on another animate, which happens a lot. We mostly talk about animates acting on inanimates, but we also talk about say. Uh, a, a boy kissing a girl or a girl kissing a boy. That's an animate acting on another animate. And there the word order is pretty important uh, in English to say, you know, if it's, is it John kissed Mary or Mary kissed John? Those mean very different things, right? And and so, so the, the boy, or, or in, and in Japanese, which is a verb final language, the way you do that is you say the boy subject, nominative, the girl object, uh, um, accusative, and then kissed, okay? And say, we are in a verb final language like Japanese, and I just don't hear something, okay? I, or or I, you don't say it. And all I heard was boy kiss, okay? So I didn't hear boy girl kiss, or I didn't hear girl boy kiss. All I heard was boy kiss. Then there's a, there's a possibility, I don't know now, uh, I might not know if I'm a listener just coming into this conversation, that whether the boy is the agent or the patient of that. I, I know the boy's involved in kissing, but I don't know if he's the agent or the patient because I, I just don't have enough information because all my nouns come before my verb and I don't know which one it is. Whereas in English, if I hear boy kiss, it's different from I hear kiss boy. Like those things sound different because of the orientation relative to the verb. The verb provides a kind of a, a, a centering point which, because basically verbs and nouns aren't the same, right? So nouns are labeling things in the world. Typically verbs are telling how they're interacting. Here in English, we got the verb in between. And so that gives me a cue as to how boy is interacting in this event. Whereas in Japanese, I don't have that. And so the idea is that if you wanna keep an SOV language, a nice way to keep that language, that word order, and, and there's like reasons to think that SOV is a really nice word order, actually a very easy word order for people to learn. Uh, independent, if they didn't have any language before. Uh, so there's these, like a couple of case studies of these sign languages, which are, which are, you know, basically born out of whole cloth. There's Nicaraguan sign and El Bedouin sign language. These are both SOV languages where they're created from uh, home sign languages. They both somehow created a verb final language. And so there's something easy about verb final languages. There's this very cool paper by, um, uh, Sarah, uh, Susan Golden Meadow showing that no matter what native language you speak, people will tend to gesture meanings from that from that language. In if, if you just now, I'm not. I'm like basically trying to make up a sign language to describe English. They'll gesture in SOV even though they speak SVO, which is pretty boy girl kiss. Exactly. Exactly. Well, actually. That's an interesting case you just brought up with the boy girl, but with boy girl, it's boy ball kick they will do. So if it's inanimate object, when it becomes too animate, then becomes gets much messier. But if it's an animate acting on an inanimate, then they will tend to gesture the verb at the end, almost very, very, very robustly. Wow, it's it's so weird because when I you're right when I think about sort of acting it out with gestures, it does make sense to sort of like you know you and then the ball and then kick you know, but. Yeah. But but as a as a as an English native speaker, it it kind of it feels weird to me to to the the idea of constructing a sentence where you know you have your two kind of 
um, your two objects and then or your subject object and then the verb. It kind of feels yeah. feels weird to me, but yeah. that's just because I'm I'm a native speaker. Yeah, yeah, you're a native speaker of English, but even so. Uh... But even so, you might gesture. I mean, I, I bet if you were naive in this experiment, you would actually probably gesture verb finally on, on these cases because it's very robust. It's like 90% of the trials in uh, hers and our replication. We did this these things as well from, from uh, Susan Golden Meadows' work. It's, it's very robust, I think. But so that's just to say that SOV is a very, somehow is a very natural word order for humans. It's a natural word order. And so if you want to keep that natural word order under the noisy channel hypothesis, it turns out that case marking is a great way to do it. It's like a, a way to have a redundant cue as to what, what I mean. You know, when I say, you know, boy, I say, oh, nominative. And so even if you lose the other thing, okay, you know, this person's the agent. So it's like a redundant cue to tell you how to interpret this noun. And I need those under the noisy channel hypothesis more for verb final languages just because deletion is a thing that I have to deal with in, in, in normal communication. And so it turns out that works very nicely to explain a lot about world's languages in that, uh, as I say, there's this lovely generalization which was unexplained by uh, Greenberg, which is SVO tend not to be case marked, no endings on them. So English is a lovely case of old English used to be, uh, you know, it comes very close to German and German as you, I'm sure you know is very case marked. And so German is underlyingly, people think SOV. It's got certainly verb final, a lot of verb final structures in it. English used to be like that. And as English had language contact, old English had language contact um, with French and um, it, it lost its um, case marking. And as it lost its case marking, it also lost its uh, verb finalness. So it's hard to know which one caused which, but it went verb medial and lost case marking entirely. Unlike, so it went from German. And so once you go verb medial, you don't need uh, case marking anyway. And, and sweet people just drop that. It just goes away. And so that's kind of just like a case study in, uh, in, in the, uh, in the observation that if uh, it turns out that's just like, you know, all almost all verb final languages are case marked and a lot have a lot of endings and almost, I shouldn't say it's not so much true in the other direction. There are examples of SVO languages with lots of case marking and Russian's one of them. So uh, Russian's a lovely la language where it tends to be SVO and has lots of case marking. So that just means it's a very redundant communication system. It's basically very robust to uh, uh, to communication under this hypothesis, it's the other direction, which is a, which will be a little weirder if you can find verb final languages with no case marking. And I I don't know of any of those. Um, they probably exist. There's always exceptions to things. I think or often. I mean, I I don't know about this. This is not a uh, this is the kind of case where I would expect exceptions because it's just a case of like a general tendency, a sort of a hypothesis about how languages are changing to make communication easier. And, and the thing is about any, any of those of that kind of hypothesis is there's many things that make language easier or harder. And so there's tons of, in some sense, the first thing I talked about, one of the first things I talked about was this sort of word length, word, word predictability correlation. It's not perfect. So in some sense, there's many, many, many exceptions to that at the word level. So there's many short words which are very, very low frequency and even aren't, even aren't very predictable. You know, a word like ox is like very low, very short word um, and also uh, pretty low frequency now. Um, you know, it, data are complicated <laughs> in real languages. And so there's like many, many factors predicting 
you know, explaining why any one thing is the way it is. And so you're going to find tons of exceptions. There's a general case there across every language, though, that word length is very correlated with uh, word predictability. Here, I think there's going to be a general case such that uh, the, you know, you're going to have less case marking uh, as you have more verb, more verb final regularity. But I don't, I mean, we actually, I know that less for sure as I, than I know about the other hypothesis. Really, really fascinating. I think the most fascinating part for me was the way that, um, the way that you know, what as you say, when when the position of 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 the verb and object started to switch around, you know, from from old English to to modern English, yeah, how we how we lost the case markings. I've never heard that. I've never heard that just used as a reason before ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like there is some leftover case marking, right, in English. I mean, we still have case marking on our pronouns, and that's just that's kind of it. And maybe genitive, right? The possessive case marking is kind of like this apostrophe s, this on the end. That's another. But there is some little leftover case marking in English, but not much. It's uh, it's all and it's SVO. So that's like uh, lots of SVO languages are like that. They just don't have any. There's no reason to mark them. I mean, I don't. That's the hypothesis, you know. Before this, at least before this hypothesis, there wasn't any. So it's like this is like I, I like this hypothesis because it's very simple. It's about communication, and there's independent evidence for you know deletions being something that we expect because we just don't hear everything that someone says. We miss a lot of stuff. Uh, so these are like so it's, it's plausible. It's not these aren't proofs by any uh, stretch. These are just kind of uh, you know uh, I think a productive way to study language. So. <laughs> Well, uh, well, actually, it's sort of, in a way, it's similar to, to this, which is the um, uh, generalizing dependency distance. Because, again, it's sort of about, um, like, generalizations uh, among various languages, right? And w would, would it be fair to say, would it be fair to say that, as a general rule, as a general rule, we like to keep, keep sort of things that are meaningful together? That's, yeah, that's another, so that's not... Yeah, yeah, that's another, um, that's a true cross-linguistic universal that we discovered. This is uh, Richard Futrell. He did this lovely study of, like at the time, 37 languages. And we looked, he looked at about, I think, 20 more, which you need to, to study this, to study syntax of a language, how the word order works, that aspect of syntax. Uh, you need more than just big texts, you need parsed texts. And so there's something called the universal dependencies corpora, which he was able to, uh, has been able to access more recently. Originally, he was having to parse some of these things himself But uh, when we did this. But we observed there exactly that observation. What you said is that words that um, uh, compose together in meanings tend to be close together linearly in the string. And so that, that, you know, worms that go together in, in meaning are placed together in the syntax. And, th and that's true in every single language that we've looked at so far, every single one. And is that is that maybe as well because of the noisy channel thing? You know, if you keep it together, there's less chance of meaning getting lost. I mean, is that? I, I think this is really a memory thing as opposed to, it, it's probably connected. There's probably some way to connect it, but the simplest story I think is just basically when I am speaking, I am thinking about this and I it's easier for me to put the things together that I'm that I'm th thinking about close together, and so it's just harder for me to keep it in mind across a long as I'm saying something else, and so I want to put it together as close as I can. So I think this is this is an information sort of an in, you know it's a, a cognitive constraint driving um, form, syntactic form, but it's not 
I don't think this is due to noise, sort of the possibility of noise. This is more about the just limited memory. There's some some sense in which it is uh, sort of there's some sense maybe the memory because of the the uh, because we don't have perfect memory of what we said. That's kind of the sense in which it's you know there's a, sort of a noisy representation of what I've said. Like I can't remember everything I said. So I want to say the dependencies that um, that I've got in mind as soon as I can. That maybe that's the connection in some ways. It's very connected. It's, 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 anyway, it's a cognitive constraint again. This is another one of those not built-in things about, it's not really language specific. It's got to do with cognition. It's got to do with, this is not so much about communication. It's driving, you know, uh, other aspects of our memory sort of making language the way it is, as opposed to so the Chomskyan sort of way of thinking about there's maybe universals which are built in, which have, which are just purely language based and have no no other cognitive uh, basis. This is very different from that hypothesis. Those, the, all these things I've been talking about are different from that hypothesis. That that hypothesis, I I, um, I haven't seen any. Uh, it's harder to test that kind of hypothesis. The other, the alternative. Uh, well, people haven't quantitatively evaluated it, it that I'm aware yet. You know, fr from an outsider's point of view, the idea of trying to separate language from from humanity, you know, from communication, from from needs and desires, it seems so kind of ludicrous, you know, in a way, as an outsider. Um, but but wow, I mean, it's certainly there's certainly a lot of people on board with the idea. Well, you know, Chomsky is very uh, Noam Chomsky is very uh, powerful. Um, I would I guess speaker and. Uh, and writer, I guess, a long time ago. I mean, he certainly writes still, but he was a long time ago, still very, very convincing to some people. I don't really, so his arguments for the evolution of language not being about um, communication are, are not very strong. I mean, they, they were taken as a given for many years that um, his belief is, so Chomsky thinks that, I, I he thinks that language isn't, uh, the point of human language isn't for communication, it's for thinking. It's so it's a it's about how to just think to yourself, how do you think to yourself? And so there, I, I I've um, I mean that's it's not a crazy it's not a crazy hypothesis. It's perfectly plausible. It's just uh, you know diff, different people have a different intuition, so that, and that, that we can evaluate on that. Well, I mean, Ev Ev did some work that showed the difference between language and thought, actually. <laughs> That's oh, that's absolutely right. So yes, that's absolutely right. And so I, I mean, I kind of think that's what's a little uh, misguided in some ways about his idea there. Um, so that you know, language and thought aren't the same. I think there may be big differences in people. I don't know this. This is just sort of speculation in whether or not we have an inner voice. So I think it's kind of a weird thing to even talk about in some ways, but whether when you're thinking, do you actually think you're hearing someone talking? Are you talking when you're thinking? And I think there's a big variability across people in whether they have that perceptual or not. And so I think Noam Chomsky has the perception that he's talking to himself all the time. He's one of these people. There are people out there, many people, who hear themselves talking to themselves all the time. And, and for me, I, there's variability here because I do not talk to myself in this way. I have never heard my internal voice in the way they talk about it. There is no internal voice. It's just nothing because I don't see why I need, I can't even understand the idea of why I need 
to hear this voice of language when it's like the language is good enough without any voice to it for me. But that's an interesting thing to explore actually empirically. I, I have this sense that maybe that's what's different about Noam and me at least is that he has an inner voice. And so he's hearing this all the time and I never hear this. <laughs> and so I think this is crazy. And he thinks, of course. <laughs> wait, wait a second. So the whole kind of, the whole um, Chomsky in the field of linguistics was just built on the <laughs> on his, on his inner voice. <laughs> it's maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I I have this. That's my suspicion. That it's my suspicion that he has a lot of. He's waiting. He t I I didn't realize until recently that uh, when people talk about an inner voice, they mean inner voice. I always thought that was a metaphor because I have n I have no inner voice. It's like I can talk. And I talk a lot. <laughs> I am very good at talking. But when I'm not talking, there's nothing going on. There's no voice in there. Zero. I don't know how you feel. Do you have an inner voice? Do you feel like you're talking to yourself when you're talking to yourself? No, I don't. And and in fact, yeah, like I've always wondered because, you know, if, if my wife asks me, she says, you know, what are you thinking about? I'm like, nothing. Like, there's no... There's, I mean, I might be daydreaming, but there's certainly no kind of dialogue associated with it, you know? I know, I've talked to a bunch of people now, and many people say they hear themselves talking. They hear them when they're thinking. And, and I do not do this. And so I think this is possibly, I'm just making this up now, I'm speculating. But I, I mean, I just didn't know when people said inner voice that they actually meant inner voice. And I have no inner voice. There's like a silence in there, and it's totally fine with me. And uh, well, apparently there's big variability in what and whether people can visualize as well. So both auditory, and it's not like I can't do it. I can certainly imagine, like I can hear songs in my head if I want, and I can I can hear someone saying something. I can imagine these things. I just don't do it by when I, when I'm thinking. It's just not something that happens. I don't know. I don't know. This is just something I found. I started talking to someone recently, and I found this astounding that he was saying he was talking about his inner voice, and I just did not know what he was talking about. Well, there was there was some research that it, I read it. Someone posted it on Twitter maybe six months ago about how they just they, they went to Pixar and they talked to all these animation artists who, you know, who were obviously really creative and talented people. And they discovered that it was about 50 50 whether or not when they closed their eyes, they could actually visualize something. And and the researchers, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that there was people you know, if you close your eyes and say, okay, think of a circle for, for 50, you know, half of these people is blank, just black. Whereas the other half, they can see it. They can see it rotating. And it's like a similar thing, maybe. Right. I think it's very similar. It's exactly that. I can't remember what that is called when you can't do this. There's a label for not being able to do the visualization. And I, and I was wondering, I, but I can do, I can do both. I can certainly do both, but I can certainly, I can, I can imagine the auditory and I can imagine the vision. I just don't do the auditory automatically it's just not going all the time and these people apparently there's people who just talk to themselves all the time and it's not like i can't think in language i can think in language i uh i just i don't all, i mean I, I know that i'm not thinking in language a lot of times i mean a lot of the evidence for you know i mean you were talking about ev's talking about uh her her research with rosemary varley which shows these patients who've had these massive uh, uh, brain deficits to language area, and yet they can do very complicated tasks still. So they're obviously able to think perfectly well without language, and so that you know that shows you know you know unquestionably that language is different uh, from thought.
but you it's kind of obvious that language is different from thought in many other ways like if language is the same as thought then i wouldn't have any trouble writing down you know complicated ideas that i have like you, you often like i often have insights without being able to put them into words right it takes a while it takes so long to be sometimes for me to figure out how to say the thing that i know is true that i figured out but i can't say it well that's clear example of language not being thought and, and you know if anyone was a good example of language not being thought it would be chomsky in some ways because his writing is very unclear often <laughs> it's very hard for me to know what he intends and it's weird that he thinks they're the same if he does think they're the same because i i had this argument with him here recently over for you is it possible to imagine language without communication um it's a different beast it's it, and so it's not a human language then yes i can certainly imagine it uh, it just, it's, it seems it's more like art or something then, you know, it's some sort of art form. Like, I, I, I mean, that's what it feels. I mean, that's my basic intuition, I guess, is that the function of human language is communication. And so you can use it for other things if you want. And uh, so I could invent languages, which aren't really very good for communication, which are just for some other purpose. Uh, I could certainly do that. I just don't know. They wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't be good for, if they're not devised for communication, then they're not going to be good at it. I think I'm just sort of wondering, um, you know, well, this, this is a question I kind of ask everybody. I mean, why is it that you're, that you're interested in language? Because in, you know, in some ways, you know, the work that you do could be viewed as really kind of, you know, abstract and it's all about, you know, formulas and, 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 and big data but yet, you know, you, your, your, your view of language really is kind of very human. That's a very hard question to answer. I, mean, I, I guess I've always been interested in, I just, I can't answer why I'm interested in. I can just tell you that I've always been interested in the, the forms and structure of language. So even when I was a little kid and we had to do weird sentence structure, grammar trees, I did have to do this when I was like in fifth grade or sixth grade. And, it, and I found it extremely interesting to see how, like they didn't talk about it this way, but it seemed like this was like how compositional structures of different words gave meanings. They didn't talk about it this way, but that's what it seemed like was going on there. And so I guess I'm a, I, I mean, I mean my, my background originally is sort of math and computer science. And I find this to be like a fascinating human problem just from an engineering point of view is how is it we're taking this list big set of things and combining them into whatever it is we want to think and talk about. I just find that to be a totally fascinating problem. Now you ask me, why is that interesting? I don't know why that's, that's just seems because I guess it's because it's, it's our method of, of interacting with each other and the world. And just to understand that um, just seems like a, a, a fundamental thing to want to understand whether or not you know, I, I, I started off in computer science. And so the computer science uh, approach to these questions is typically not about how humans are doing it. It's about how can we solve some engineering problem? Uh, that's just because of the problems that those that computer scientists can, I think, get the most funding to do most easily, as opposed to what's, you know, most interesting, which is why does language look like this in a, uh, from a, you know, from whatever perspective, I think is just a fascinating question. And I, I actually don't even speak very many languages. I speak, I mean, I'm Canadian, so I speak French a bit. 
you know, reasonably well, but I, I, I haven't like spent a lot of time trying to learn a lot of languages. I kind of just like the problems associated with, um, with any one of them, the sort of the, the compositional problem associated with, you know, combining meanings that we, that every human who speaks language does. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. I just, why do I like it? It's fascinating. That's why. <laughs> I think I think maybe 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 the reason I find I find it interesting is because you know you're um, you're sort of applying computer science, which is very you know it's a very hard science. It's like right or wrong, and you know you're taking something like human language, which you know there's like culture and psychology, and it's messy, really messy, and trying to sort of reconcile those two things. You know, maybe that's the maybe maybe that's the fascination because it's just so difficult. Yeah, I, I guess I have this sort of bias that uh, it's, you know, all these things are going to turn out kind of simple at some level. And so I, I keep, whenever the problem, the solution that's been proposed is really complicated, I, I just, I sort of don't believe it. <laughs> I think maybe there's an easier solution because, you know, the solutions I'm giving you are pretty easy, actually. They're pretty simple to say. Like there's a little bit of math. It's true. It's a little bit, uh, there's a bit of math, but the math is like, not you know there's like there's words that you can use to say what's going on in that mass so it's like oh that's all that is and so uh it's really if, as soon as things get a little unwieldy i worry that it's wrong that i have i have a huge simplicity bias the uh towards uh for for language and so that's you know me you know the fact that i guess i like to work on it because i felt like that wasn't the case when i when i started in this field that wasn't the case at all and so i thought Oh, this is a place where I can apply some neat skills, you know, math, computer science skills to somewhere that probably has solutions like like that. Eventually, someone will start figuring them out, and so I want to do that. I want to try anyway. No, I I love that. I love that actually, because um, because sometimes there's a you know when you're trying to teach someone a language, and you know you can have grammar explanations that can run to you know ten pages with lots of you know, really sort of exceptions and details and, but, but there's always something there, you know, big and simple, just sitting there that you can, you, it might not be right a hundred percent of the time, but it's right 99% of the time. And that's, that's good enough for me, you know, as a teacher, it was a really fascinating uh, conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. I know that you're a, I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been very uh, enjoyable talking to you. I hope you can use some of this. <laughs>